I mean, watching that warms us. I mean, we can all let out a, a collective, oh, man, that's incredible. Um, it's a dangerous and twisted person who relishes in the pain and the torture of animals. And so when these guys go out of their way to help in a situation like that, we, we applaud that. We love that. Um, but it's not just that they went out of their way. That's dangerous. Uh, a, a wounded animal um, is a dangerous animal. And when you're looking at two huge bucks like that, uh, they had to be extremely careful. And you saw the caution that these guys were taking in their approach. And, and I would like to think that I would be the kind of person that would step in and intervene in a situation like that. And I think all of us would like to think we would be that kind of person that would step in to help uh, a wounded animal. Uh, but what about the kind of person that jumps in to help another person? What about being the kind of person that, that jumps in to help another human being that is in trouble? You remember when Jesus was asked, uh, what is the greatest commandment? You know, this was in the middle of a, a series of questions. They were coming at Jesus, trying to get him to, to say something that they could trap him with and trick him and twist his words and then convince everybody that he was a fraud. And, and so they asked that question, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus came out quoting Deuteronomy 6. You've got to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And then he said, second like unto it, basically um, necessarily connected to that command is, and he quoted Leviticus 19.18, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. But the guys weren't done trying to trap Jesus, and so immediately upon Jesus saying that, what did they ask? Well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And remember what Jesus told them? He told them that story that, that really is a story that's reached far beyond the bounds of Christianity. It's a story that well known in societal culture. It's a story of the Good Samaritan. And he talks about the man who was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he came amongst the thieves and they, they beat him up and left him for dead in the ditch and stole his things. And then he says there was a, a priest who was passing on the same route and, and saw the man in the ditch and made his way to the other side of the road and worked his way around, ignoring him in his pain. And then there was a Levite, one of the, the priestly uh, tribe, and, and he also passed by on the other side of the road. But then there was a Samaritan. A Samaritan who would be a uh, racial and societal enemy of this man left for dead and bleeding in the ditch. But what did he do? With great care he went and he bound up his wounds and he put him on his animal and he took him to the next town and he paid for his stay and his care and said, if it exceeds what I've given you, I'll come back and I'll take care of the rest on my way back through. He tells the story of this incredible neighbor who cares for him. I bring this up to point out that oftentimes though we would like to think that we're the kind of human who would help another struggling human. I think more often than not, we're a lot like the priests. We're a lot like the Levites. And we move to the other side of the road. We keep our distance to avoid the mess or our, our favorite word today, the drama that may be another person's life. 
But here in Luke 10, Jesus reminds us that love for God and love for our neighbor, it stops. It stoops. It helps even at great cost to oneself. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, which we have been working through and we now enter the last chapter, Galatians 6, we've been reminded of the necessity of love. In 5.5, we read that our, our faith... The faith that we profess works itself out in love, right? James would say it this way, faith without works is dead. Faith works itself out in the love that we show other people. And then later in chapter 5, that we are to use the freedom that we now have in Jesus, not for our own selfish, fleshly, pleasureful purposes, but to serve one another in love. And then that headlining fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. It's love. So as we move into this final chapter, these final verses of Galatians, we do so mindful that Paul is offering practical ways for the Galatian Jesus followers and the Meadowview Jesus followers to show that love to one another. And today, it's by seeing, it's by Stooping, it's by stopping and helping. It's these words that we've said over and over for the last few months. Looking, listening, learning, and then loving. So let's look at Galatians 6.1 today. That'll be our only verse. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Brothers and, and sisters, you could add, if, if anyone, if anyone is caught in a transgression or a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Father, help us now as we consider these challenging words. Help us to grow in this time together spirit to be like the Samaritan who's on the lookout for people that need help for people that need hope for people that need Jesus help us we pray in Jesus name amen so we notice from that first word that Paul is writing to believers, Jesus followers like him who, who possess the Holy Spirit. We, we know that not just because he says brothers, but because the letter is written to the churches at Galatia. He's writing to Jesus followers. And here he uses this term brothers, and we know this from this letter and other letters. It's, it's a bit of a transition point for him. He's going to move from what we've been talking about to some new subject matter or the application of what we have been talking about. But what does he mean when he writes this? If anyone is caught in a transgression, what's a a transgression or what's a trespass? A transgression or trespass is another word for sin. To transgress is to violate a law that has been established by God. It's to move beyond the boundary that God has set. It's where we get our term in modern day, don't trespass on my property. Don't move beyond the boundaries that have been set. 
And so for a person to be caught in a transgression, it provides us with this picture of a trap. Oftentimes sin, it, it captures us, it, in, it entangles us like a snare, like a barbed wire fence. Now you may make the connection. Oh, that's why we were watching those bucks go at it. You see, before we know what has happened, we're stuck. We're in a difficult place. We have been, as Paul says here, overtaken. James words it this way, he says, every person is tempted when he is lured, when he is enticed, fishing, hunting terms, by his own desires. Proverbs 5.22 says, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. And a couple chapters later, Solomon warns his son of the temptation of the strange woman. Notice his verbiage here. He says, with much seductive speech, she persuades this simple youth. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her like an ox goes to the slaughter. Or like a stag, a deer, is caught fast until an arrow pierces its liver. Or a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Overtaken by sin. Consider Peter. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, arrest, trial. Just hours earlier, Jesus had specifically warned Peter, Peter, before the night's over, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter said, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. But there he stands in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas as Jesus is being questioned and beaten. You're one of them. No, I am not. I don't know this man. And before Peter knows it, he said that three times the rooster crows, he makes eye contact through the window with Jesus. What happened? And I mean, we can look into that, that story and we're tempted to think, man, Peter, you bonehead. Just hours earlier, Jesus told you exactly what you were going to do and you walked right into the trap. But if we have any sense of self-awareness, we do not say that. Because we know we are just as prone to wander. We know we are just as prone to deny Jesus. We're just as easily and quickly overtaken by sin as Peter was that night. Have you ever finished throwing a, a hissy fit? I'll just use that term. Because your, kid, your kids haven't picked up their clothes like they were supposed to. And you were yelling, and your voice was raised, your tone wasn't good, you remember kicking things, hopefully just closed, but you were kicking things around, and then after it's over, just a few moments later, you realize, man, that wasn't really a, a righteous anger. That was pretty much driven by selfishness. Well, what happened in that moment? You were overtaken by sin. I shared a couple Wednesday nights ago about a time when Faith and the kids were on the road and they were heading up north to, to dad and mom's house in Lincoln. And, and uh, she had check-in times that on the road she was going to call at certain times. And one of those times came and went. And I was actually at home. And that 15 minutes was torture for me. I was planning their funeral. 
I was imagining them, you know, in a ditch. And, and in 15 minutes, all of this went through my brain until that phone rang and I heard her voice on the other end. What happened? Overtaken by sin. Have you ever looked at an empty pizza box that was full just 10 minutes ago? <laughs> and you thought, what happened to all the pizza? Overtaken by sin, unless it was like a small pizza or something like that. I'm talking about like a large pizza. In those times and seasons when sin has overtaken us, it's beat us up, it's left us for dead in the ditch. Our hope, and the hope we find from this verse, is that someone who loves us will stop. And they'll stoop. And they'll help us. They'll pull us back to Jesus. Some of you may have just had somebody come to your mind because you've had that person in your life. You were beat up. You were bruised. The brokenness of this world and the brokenness of your choices and sin had left you for dead. And, and somebody loved you enough to stop and help you and bind those wounds and care for you. Praise God for that person. Praise God for those people who have encouraged us. But today in Galatians 6, 1, we're, we're, we're all challenged here to prepare ourselves to notice and stop and help those who are overtaken by sin, those who are struggling with the, the consequences of their own choices. And so in our time together, we want to consider some instruction that we get here. And the first bit is this, be spiritual. You who are spiritual. Paul writes that you who are spiritual are the ones who should restore those who are overtaken by sin. And so what does Paul mean when he says spiritual? And before you answer, if you've been here for the last four months and you don't know the answer to that, then I have failed you as a teacher. Because for the last four months, we have walked through the fruit of the Spirit, which defines for us what it means to be spiritual. What it means to be in step with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. Those who are growing in spiritual fruit. So you who, and I'll just paraphrase this, you who are full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control should restore those who have been overtaken by sin. Now, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. I know how our minds and our hearts tend to work. We might see someone overtaken in a sin, someone bleeding in the ditch, someone whose life is spinning out of control, and we know that someone needs to help them. Someone needs to intervene. But we, we look at this phrase here used by Paul, and we justify, well, that person cannot be me because I'm not spiritual enough. Right? That, that's how our minds work. I'm not that person because Paul says it has to be someone who is spiritual. Understand this. Paul does not intend for this qualification to be an excuse. That's not why he puts it in here. On the contrary, he intends for this to be our motivation. Because if we look and see that someone is hurting and in need of help, and then we look in the mirror and we recognize that, that I'm, not, I'm not quite 
where I need to be spiritually, then what do we need to do? Go to the other side of the road? No, we need to repent. We need to become spiritual. We need to recognize that if I need to grow in kindness before I can help this person, God help me to be kind as I approach them. We cannot use it as an excuse. Get spiritual. Get to work doing good in the life of another person. And as I thought of this, I thought many of us, we've been using this excuse for years. Saying, I'm just not a mature enough Christian to, to teach. I don't know enough about the Bible. I'm not, I'm not ready to do those kinds of things. It's what we say. I just read this week, some of you did as well in the, the Meadowview reading plan in Hebrews chapter 5. A section that, that's always haunted me where the writer of Hebrews says, there's a lot of other wonderful things that I would love to share with you about Jesus, but you're too dull of hearing <laughs> You're still drinking milk when you should be eating meat. We have got to work on growing and becoming more spiritual. Some have been using that excuse for years, and it's time for us to, to put in the work then, to repent of what needs repented of, to learn the things that we need to learn so that we are in a position to serve anyone and everyone that God brings into our lives. Uh, there was another thing I thought of a couple weeks ago. I think, I think I was talking to Josh about this, but you know, we say, well, maybe another five years and I'll be there. I'll be ready to step up and fill those roles. You know the average lifespan of the people in the Bible? They live like to be 40 or 45 years old. They, they didn't have five years to be mature. They had to learn what it was to be spiritual and mature because their life was going to be short-lived. God in His grace gives most of us 70, 80, maybe even beyond that years on this world for the purpose of helping other people, serving Him, being Christ. we got to be spiritual. Second bit of instruction is this. It says, restore the one overtaken by sin, but do so with a spirit of gentleness. So let me say all that again. Restore the one who's overtaken by sin, but do so with a spirit of gentleness. The word restore here, uh, katarizo is this Greek word. It's used of rebuilding walls in Ezra. In Matthew chapter 4, this same term, restore, is used to describe how the disciples were mending their nets on the seashore. Outside of biblical Greek literature, in mainstream Greek literature during this time, that word was used of how someone would set a broken bone back in place. So in a nutshell, what this word restore means is to make something, or in our case, someone useful again. To bring them back to the place where God has designed them to be, to restore them to spiritual health and vitality. And in their present overtaken by sin state, they are being destroyed by sin. Satan is having his fun. He's sifting them as wheat. And the Lord Jesus calls us to love them enough to go to them, to help them, to restore them. But in this verse, it's clear that the how we go is just, if not more important than the going itself. How are we supposed to approach them? Gentleness. We just can't get away from that one, can we? 
That fruit keeps coming back up. We do it with gentleness. Can you imagine going to a doctor? You've broken your arm. You know it's broken. You can tell it's broken. It hurts. And the doctor, you sit down and he's like, let me, let me see that thing. And he just kind of pulls it to himself. And you wouldn't want to go back to that doctor again. He's not being very gentle. Yet this is sometimes how we approach those who are overtaken by sin. Remember, those overtaken by sin are oftentimes, most of the time, they're blinded to their sin. According to Scripture, they don't, they don't see the error of their ways. They've justified it. They've convinced themselves that it's okay to do what they're doing. They're blind to the situation. They, they in their mind, don't, don't need someone to enter their world and start yanking on their arms and their legs or they're trapped to say, we really got to work on this to help free them. The number one thing we have to remember as we make the approach is that we can't free them anyway. That's not in your prerogative. That's not in your power. We don't go to them in our own name. We go to them for Christ. He's the one who can free them. It's, it's his job. He's the one who, here's how he described himself in the Gospels. I am gentle and I'm lowly. I'm humble in heart. And that's the example we see in the Gospels is, is Jesus is the one, uh, all the religious leaders are accusing, man, all you do is hang out with the sinners, the outcasts. All the, the bad people in the world. He spent his time with them. I've had the privilege of sitting across the table sharing a meal with professing homosexuals, others who found themselves in the chains of sin, and I didn't condemn them. I wasn't there to berate them. I wasn't there to slander them. With, with as much gentleness in that moment as I could, I, I would open up God's Word. And I would share with them the truth of God's Word. What Scripture means to teach them about their choices and their situation. Why do that? That, that, that is quite different than, than what I grew up with as an approach. But why would I do that? Because that person, number one, they bear the image of God. And they are worthy of respect and dignity just simply because whose image they bear. And secondly, this person is overtaken in sin. And we're meant to treat them with care and with gentleness as we point them to Jesus. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast and, and Cindy Morgan, who is a singer-songwriter, uh, she was being interviewed about her life and and uh, she told a story from her childhood. She was in her early teens, 13 years old. And her mom was a Pentecostal preacher. And so she said, you know, I didn't really see my mom a lot because she was traveling a lot, doing ministry things, singing and, and preaching and doing all of these different things. Uh, but she, she transitioned and said in their town, which she grew up in, in I think it's pronounced Harlan County, Kentucky, which is, I guess, well known as one of the, the worst counties as far as crime goes. They lived out in the sticks, but in their, their little town that they would go to, they had a man named Hollis who was a cross-dresser. 
And they would see Hollis, and he'd be walking down the street. And, uh, and she said sometimes they'd be coming into town, and Hollis was walking on the highway, and her dad would be like, Hollis, you're going to get killed. Get in the back of this truck. And they would drive him into town to where he needed to go. But one particular day, uh, her and her mom stopped in their local you know, general store that had everything you needed, and, and they were standing at a bin of, of women's garments, and she said, it was embarrassing enough as a 13-year-old girl standing here with my mom uh, while she's picking things up and looking at them and sizing them. And, and all of a sudden, Hollis walks up. And he starts going through the bin as well. And he said, my mom, she, Cindy said, my mom said, hey, Hollis. And she said, hey, Lola. He responded. And her mom asked, Hollis, I've wanted to ask you a question for so long. Why do you want to be a woman? And Hollis's response was, Lola, I just look at people like you and I just think, I want to be beautiful. And here was Cindy Morgan's mom's response. Hollis, God sees you and you are beautiful. And I almost started crying while I was listening to her tell this story. What an incredible truth to speak to a person overtaken in sin in that moment. It gets to the core of what they want in life, but it brings in this incredible God who's given everything. God sees you and he makes you beautiful. I want to challenge all of us, myself included, go back and consider the fruit of gentleness. Consider those points that we looked at along the way. Consider the gentleness of Yahweh. You know, we, we get this picture of, of God in the Old Testament as the, the, the one who rains down fire, but we brought up a couple instances that, that really, we, we could name hundreds, but a couple instances. Remember how he cared for Elijah? Remember how he stooped and, and helped Elijah in his moment of need when Elijah was overtaken and he, he fed him? He nursed him back. It's, it's, it's a great picture to parallel the Good Samaritan in that moment. Remember how he came to Hagar after Abraham and Sarah had run her out of the camp now pregnant and she's wandering in the wilderness and he met her at the well and he said everything's going to be okay. And then... And then Hagar's response, she said, you're the God who sees me. Remember Jesus' gentleness as he cared for the sinners and the suffering in the Gospels? His gentleness even as he was being executed on the cross. His gentleness as he restored Peter there on the seashore. We have to be gentle. So what's the process here? Well, how do we restore people? What role do I play? And I want to share a few thoughts with you, but understand this isn't some checklist that you work through. This isn't some procedural thing. I just want to give you some principles to think about here um, as you think about what I need to do in order to help somebody who's struggling in sin. First one is this. And I think this is where we often just simply struggle to get out of the gate. We have to open our eyes to see other people. I've got to start looking beyond my own life. 
I just, most days, I just want to do what I want to do. I've got my plan, I've got my calendar, I've got my list of to-dos, and if somebody else interrupts me, I'm probably going to move to the other side of the road so I can keep on my schedule. God says, no, you've got to open your eyes to see the people that I'm bringing into your life. Don't you know that? God brings specific people into your life for you to be able to minister to. Open your eyes to pray for them as you make your approach. Don't go in your own power. You're going to be fearful. You're going to be afraid, quite possibly. I don't know what I'm going to say. Pray. Pray that God would use you as you see these individuals who are struggling. Don't you know those guys, even if they weren't Jesus followers, they were probably praying, God, I don't want that antler stuck in my stomach. Pray as you make your approach. Get to know their story. Look, listen, learn about them. Don't just immediately begin to engage them. Try to come to an understanding of, of why they're where they are. What's brought them to this point now that they're struggling and overtaken? Gain understanding. And then four, I would say this, pray with them, not just for them. You get that, right? Pray with them, not just for them. It's so easy for us. Say you're working with a guy, John, and his wife has cancer, and you, you're in a conversation. You say, you know what, John? I'm going to be praying for you guys. That's one thing. That's great. But what about in that moment saying, John, can I pray for you and your wife right now in this struggle? Pray with them. Five, open up God's Word and share truth with them. Share hope with them. We don't get the option to take God's Word and say, ah, I don't really think this is a sin anymore, and I think this one is. We have to give them what God has given us very clearly. And we, with gentleness, open up God's Word and share with them, here's what God says about transgenderism. Here's what God says about homosexuality. Here's what God's Word says about anger. Here's what God's Word says about worry and anxiety. And we show them the truth of God's Word because it's not your word or your opinion or your feelings that's going to change them. It's the truth of God's Word. It is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides uh, between soul and spirit, joints and morals, and it discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God's word is powerful. I love what Jeremiah is spoken of where it says that God's word is a hammer that breaks the rocks into pieces. It's a fire. It accomplishes these things. So we open up scripture and we share truth with him. We share hope with them in that same moment as well. We share the gospel. We share the good news of Jesus. Number six, I would say this. We invest in their life. If you can find some way to serve them, do it. If you can serve them in some way, step into their life and do it. Seven, be patient with them. Be patient with them. Be patient with yourself. And be patient with God. He doesn't change people on our timetable. He's not obligated to restore immediately. He 
has his purpose and his plan. So be patient. And then eight, I would encourage, introduce them to others who can help as well. Invite them into fellowship, this fellowship, fellowship with other people. I'm not saying, hey, pass them off to somebody else. Don't do that. You want to introduce them to other people who can step into their life and care for them as well. Uh, What all of this requires, just to be very clear, is time. Is time. And, And you know what it also requires? Um... Opening ourselves up to what could be painful. Because the truth is, you're going you're gonna to care for people, you're going to invest in people, and you're going you're to uh, love those people, and they're going to maybe turn on you. And they're going to say things that are hurtful, they're going to twist things. And you have to be ready for that. We, we see in Jesus' life the clear example of that. Now, if you want the textbook on restoring and and moving through this process with people, what we're talking about here is this other scary term that we often throw out, church discipline. This is just church discipline in those, those stages where we see someone hurting someone in sin and we go to them. When we think of church discipline, we think of like, all right, time for you to leave. You know, we think of this, get out of here, you dirty, rotten sinner. That's not what church discipline is meant to be. Not at all. I titled the sermon today, Ready to Restore, because I'll tell you, Jay Adams wrote an incredible book titled that, Ready to Restore, that's about this particular process of restoring brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, so restore them. Final piece of instruction is this. It's a warning. He says, watch yourself. Watch yourself. In the video, those guys were being extremely careful as they approached those two entangled bucks. Why? Because they were in great danger. I can't believe neither of them got hit by either barbed wire or an antler. They were in great danger. They could have easily been killed. And our temptation as we enter into the world and the life of another person, another who's struggling in sin, is this. We might get stuck ourselves. We have to be very careful. Satan knows this and he will do his best to end this this process even though we may go in with good intentions to trip us up, to get us entangled in those circumstances as well. If you're trying to restore a brother or sister who's struggling with an issue like pornography or even anxiety and worry, watch out. Because Satan will want to pull you in and attempt to lure you in as well. But I believe the greater danger that, that Paul wants us to consider here is that in helping the struggler we become tempted to be conceited. Because we're helping a person, maybe, and we think in our minds, with something as simple as gender. And we we pridefully consider ourselves better than them. I figured that out when I was two. And we can make snide comments and we we put ourselves up on this this pedestal and we consider ourselves better than them. And that's a dangerous place to be. You see, while we're on our high horse, what often happens is we forget, like the Pharisees did, the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
And Satan would love to come and end us in those moments. So how do we avoid this? How do we watch ourselves? Number one, I go back to it. Be spiritual. Namely, we have to be humble. Paul says, let the one who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Don't think you ever have it all together. Because just like in Peter's case, we're just a decision away from denying the very Lord who has saved us. Every day we have to remind ourselves that we need Jesus just as much as everyone else. I need the gospel just as much as everyone else. Uh, I might be in that ditch tomorrow. And I don't want some conceited guy coming by. Oh, look what you did. I want somebody humble and gentle like Jesus to care for me. We also approach with caution and wisdom. We use sound judgment. We invite others to hold us accountable in those moments where we're trying to help other people. We need other people on our team. And so as we bring this to a close, I want to be clear on this point. Caring for others. Restoring others. It's your job. It's not a pastor's job. He didn't write this to pastors. He wrote this to Christians, to the church. It's not a deacon's job. Paul says, brothers, meaning every one of us, you are called to lovingly care for those who are seated around you today. And maybe more so, you're called to care for those who aren't seated around you today, who very well may be overtaken by sin. They're a part of your family. You work with them. They live in your neighborhood. I'm talking about those whom a sovereign God has brought into your life. We have to begin to look, to listen, to learn, and to love those people God has placed around us. What excuses do you have for not stooping to help restore others? What justifications do you make for moving to the other side of the road? One more bit of encouragement. Be humble enough to welcome and receive the help that others may offer you in those moments. Maybe you're the one here today and you're blinded and other people have been trying to help you and other people have been telling you, I love that illustration of C.J. Mahaney, you know I do. Man, you got some cream cheese on your face. You can't see it but everybody else sees it and they're trying to help you see it and you're just getting angry. Be humble enough to receive the instruction of others. So when, when or if someone approaches you pointing out a sin and offering a, a word of warning, don't be like those, those dumb deer. I mean, you're just like, hey, calm down, man. I'm trying to help you. Don't resist but trust that what they're doing, they do in, in love. Mm. So who are they? Who are the people that you know who need you to stop and stoop in gentleness and help them? I'm going to ask you to bow with me for a moment. I want to give you some time to pray. Maybe it's a prayer. God, humble me.
Help me to be a person who's willing to listen to the instruction, the correction of others. But I imagine more so for many of us, the prayer is God help me to not be the priest and the Levite. Help me to be like Jesus and stoop and help when others are struggling in sin. And not do it in, in judgment or because I'm better. But to do it because God stooped 2,000 years ago to come into this world, to come into our broken and messed up world and our broken and messed up lives so that He could save us. So that He could bind our wounds and give us every gift and every blessing that we would need in order to be completely healed and restored. That's the example we follow. I want to give you a moment to pray. Father, I pray you would help us to, in humility, avoid avoid being the conceited, judgmental jerk who looks at others and says, God, thank you that I am not like them. I would never do what they do. Help us to be the humble who beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help us to truly embrace your grace and mercy that you've given us in Jesus so that we can truly share that grace and mercy with others who desperately need him. With the holluses of the world. With our cranky neighbors who never seem to have any joy in life. With our family member who's battling cancer. In all of these areas, God, please help us to like Jesus. Work to restore. To restore those whom you love. God, help us. Because we can't do it alone. And God, if there's someone here today who needs restored, I'm asking you to do it. I'm asking you to help some of us see it so that we can step into their life and show them your love. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.